1: All right, Professor Susan Golisic. Thank you so much for joining us in Cleveland, and thank you all for joining us for I think is our second to last chat of the day. So, uh, you were telling me earlier that since you've been here as a uh, professor of the automotive and expert in the automotive supply chain, that some freight brokers have been coming up with th- coming up to you and asking you a little bit about these sort of relationships that OEMs or original equipment manufacturers. Their relationships with the big three and how they can have some some challenging uh kind of conversations, especially around air freight or rushing uh you know rushing parts to factories or what have you. Uh, you were saying that you've also had this experience when you were uh, at one of the big three companies uh, back in the nineties. How can supply chain companies sort of navigate this? Kind of tricky relationship between the OEMs and the big three. Um, Is there a way to navigate it, or is this just sort of a a fact of life in the in the automotive supply chain world? Well, that's a great question, Rachel, uh, and thanks for
0: having me here to talk about this. Yeah, my experience when I worked uh, for Chrysler in the '90s was really interesting because I actually bought transportation for Chrysler for one of the plants. And it was really interesting to me because the message that went out to the general public was that we collaborated with all of our carriers. And and that would be any kind of logistic service provider that we used. And I always had thought that collaboration meant that you really worked well together and you worked on solutions together. And that was not, in fact, what we did. Um, and I know that the other auto manufacturers, the big manufacturers didn't do that as well. It was pretty much we're going to tell you what to do and you have to do it, otherwise I'll find somebody else that will. And so that makes it really difficult because these huge companies and it's not just the auto industry, but the big manufacturers in the auto industry, they have a lot of power and they wield that power because they know there are multiple carriers that they can work with and that makes the relationships really difficult. Um so I guess my advice always to the carriers was, make sure you're open, you're honest, you're transparent, um, because that's going to help with that personal relationship with whomever you're dealing with at the big manufacturer. And if you develop a personal relationship, and I've done a lot of research in business relationships, and if the people in charge of those business relationships have a good relationship, then that helps the business relationship. So that's an important factor to consider is develop a really good relationship with whoever you were working with. And then if you're open and honest and transparent, that's going to make you more valuable as a partner to the company, and they're going to be less likely to say, oh, you made a mistake, you're out. They're going to want to try to work with you then to keep you going and keep you as an established good partner. Um, There's obviously a variety of providers a variety of sizes of partners. And so sometimes that's harder for the really small partners. They're a little bit leery of trying to put forth what they'd really like to happen. Um, but they're also very valuable. The The big companies want a multitude of carriers to work mm-hmm. with because that helps diversify what they do. So yeah, ex- establish a personal relationship and that'll help the business relationship. It'll help it continue and potentially give a little bit more power to the supplier
1: where they may not have it. That's interesting. It reminds me, you know, time and time again, especially when freight is, when the freight market is really hot, when rates are incredibly high, we keep hearing over and over again, you know, it might seem tempting to really jack up your rates, but maybe keep them at a normal, medium, above average type of of price rather than going as high as you can. Because you know, as soon as the market crashes again, that um, that same uh, shipper that you've been working with will say, okay, well, now I'm going to cut rates uh, rock bottom. Mm-hmm. So it's a uh, definitely, it seems like the, the what we keep hearing over and over again is, you know, maybe you should actually be uh, collaborative instead of saying you're collaborative. Uh, so that's interesting. So um, definitely in the last three years, it seems like the automotive supply chain has been in the headlines over and over again, especially when it comes to semiconductors and finding those chips. What is the current status of the automotive supply chain? Is it still taking, you know, months and months to find a car, if anything? Uh, what, what are kind of the delays that we're seeing right now, if any? Well, the auto industry has caught up
0: quite a bit. They, they really did have a rough year in 2021-2022, extended waits for vehicles, um, and the auto companies were focusing on their more profitable vehicles and not building as many as the less profitable vehicles because of the part shortages, especially in chips, Uh, but they've caught up a lot with that. Uh, There's been a lot of work to try to develop additional chip suppliers, to have new plants, particularly uh, diversify the locations of those plants to be able to get those parts in. And now the auto industry has a lot more inventory of, of finished cars, and so the waits are not quite as long. The exception to that is electric vehicles. Um, because a lot of the battery parts are still, there's still issues with the manufacturing of the batteries, getting those in, and so forth. So the waits are really long for those. The one thing about electric vehicles, though, is a lot of customers are used to waiting for those vehicles, and so if you're told, well, instead of four months, it's going to take six months, that's not as difficult a pill to swallow for consumers as it as it was where they used to be able to go to the lot and they wanted an Ford F-150 and they couldn't get one because it wasn't there. Um, so waiting for electric vehicles is not as big of a, a drastic thing for consumers. And so it seems to be okay. They still want them. They're still demanding them. And of course, the manufacturers are trying to come out with more more options. Uh, those that didn't have an electric vehicle are working on coming out with an electric vehicle and so forth. So that's mm-hmm. primarily going to be the big one that we're still waiting on and seeing delays with. What's the
1: profitability, uh, the profit margins like on those electric vehicles? Because I remember when um, we talked back last year about uh, that story about how uh, so many automotive manufacturers are shifting towards those pickup trucks, those SUVs, because those are more profitable vehicles over the sedans and the, the smaller cars. Are EVs also particularly profitable for the industry? Or are they where do they fall on the scope of, you know, a a four-door sedan versus a pickup truck, I guess? Where, Where are EVs on that spectrum? So the EVs,
0: theoretically, are very highly profitable for the manufacturer, but that really comes down to, do they have really great processes in place to get all of that profitability? And sometimes it depends on did they make smart decisions in ordering their parts and getting what they need? And did they have to expedite anything and those kinds of things? Because when that comes into play, that eats into their profitability. So I guess the answer is yes and no. It, they electronic, Electric vehicles are very profitable if the manufacturing process is good and it mm. runs the way it should. And there seems to be, um, particularly for a lot of the domestic producers, there seems to be a bigger learning curve for them to get to that point where they're really seeing the profitability that they can from those vehicles.
1: Is um so what what is the sourcing like for, you know, particularly lithium batteries? We've been hearing a lot about near shoring of lithium manufacturing and lithium or mining rather and uh manufacturing these batteries. Where do we currently find these these batteries and were kind of the the hiccups and hurdles to uh you know making this this supply more depend- dependable
0: so a lot of the metals that go into the batteries are coming from developing countries so the mining that's occurring and so forth and some of the issues behind that a lot of the the manufacturers are struggling a little bit with some of the practices right where we're in a an An era of of people want to know what's going on in the supply chain. They want to know what what's happening. Do you have visibility of your suppliers upstream, all the tiers, and and do they have good practices? Because obviously, the first bad practice that is known makes it into the media, and then you've got a PR issue on your hands. Mm. So dealing with um, that kind of aspect of well, we really need all of the things that go into the battery. But are we doing it in a way that's not going to keep us out of the headlines? Are we getting it smartly? Are we getting it efficiently? Are and are, are we getting it, or do we need to start looking at other options for that? And so right now, it can be pretty difficult to get some of those metals, hmm. um, especially because they're all also there's you know there's the supply, but there's many many more companies now trying to build these vehicles, trying to get these batteries. And so there's a higher demand for that. A lot of the manufacturers are now looking at, well, can we build battery plants and where can we build them? And how can we ensure that we're doing it right and we're still obtaining the parts that have to go
1: into the batteries? Where are some of the biggest battery plants right now? And is it uh, easy for American uh, auto manufacturers to access those, or are they kind of lower on the list in terms of being able to access uh, those batteries? The A lot of the plants are not, they're not in the United States.
0: As I mentioned, they're in developing countries. So South America, Africa, th- places like that, they're, they're building these plants to be closer to where they're getting a lot of these metals from. Um, they are looking at putting them all over. Um, but the It will come down to if if a a battery manufacturer is looking at I have this amount of capacity to supply X amount, they're going to start to look at, okay who's a good partner for us? If I'm a supplier, is this customer a really good customer? Are they going to be a customer for the long term? Um, Because then they're going to start to allocate Mm. where they're going to send their supply. And that's been an issue in the auto industry all with all the delays that they've experienced is are these parts being allocated? And who are they being allocated to? And therefore, what decisions do they have to make based on that allocation? So uh, a lot of the manufacturers can get them. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of, have they been getting them for a while? And are they a good partner? And are they willing to pay the right prices for those batteries, which then trickles down to, is it fair pricing that then goes to where all the metals are coming from that go into the batteries as
1: well. Okay. Okay. So speaking of of batteries and the sort of inventory, uh, I think one particularly famous sort of uh, um, association that folks have with, with automotive supply chain is the introduction of just-in-time inventory and just-in-time manufacturing. Do you think that the just-in-time, um, do you think that that will continue on in auto supply chain, or do you think that folks are going to move away from that, considering all of the crises of the last few years trying to uh, source these parts in a sustainable and and uh, timely manner? Mm, that's a good
0: question. Um, they, a lot of the companies are moving back toward just-in-time. I think they're being a little bit more particular about What needs to be just in time. Is it all of the parts or is it just some of the important parts? Um, Is it certain materials that we get that cost us more money if we run out of it? Um, So I think they're taking a little bit more time to take a look at the inventory, the decisions they've made to hold the different types of parts and how many days, how many weeks of inventory and so forth. And so They are trying to get back to just in time with many things. Um, We've also seen that the uh, United States automobile supplier or the automobile manufacturers have not always made the best decisions when it comes to inventory and managing just in time. It's been a difficult um, process to get to the point where they were before then. You have these big disruptions and then they run out of inventory and they can't build vehicles, which means, of course, they're losing a ton of money. So um, they are going to get back to just in time. It's just a matter of them deciding which parts need to be just in time versus those that they've had issues with, like chips. They're likely to hold a larger inventory of those because Mm -hmm. they don't want to run into the, the, the same things that they saw the last few years with we can't get the vehicles out there when they're demanded. Uh, And, and we know, and it was mentioned earlier, the whole idea of brand loyalty and it not really being there. Um, There are some people that are brand loyal, but there are many others that kind of feel like, you know, if I go to a, a car dealership and I want a particular type of vehicle and they don't have it, there's another manufacturer that makes a similar type of vehicle and I can go potentially test drive that and, and get a vehicle from somebody else. So.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting point you had, you had mentioned. We were talking a week or so ago. Is that if if someone can't find, if someone wants a Ford, but the only thing available is a the Toyota, they're just going to go with the Toyota. And it's it's interesting because you know when I if, when I'm online shopping, if I can't, if I need to get you know dish soap tomorrow, and but my, my preferred brand is available in two weeks, I don't really care. But it's interesting that with automotive and housing, folks are just sort of going with whatever is available in it. And that might be a permanent shift as well. One last quick question. Um, we've been talking about how the American uh, auto manufacturers are approaching some of these post-COVID inventory challenges. How is that different um, with the European or the Asian auto manufacturers? Are they also kind of approaching this in a similar way as U.S. manufacturers? Um, you know that's an interesting question.
0: Uh, I think that um some of the Asian producers are not not necessarily approaching it the same way the United States manufacturers are. they They have just much a much more established culture because that's what some of this comes back to is the culture of the actual company mm. and how they operate. and and the Asian manufacturers have long been really great with their culture and how they approach just-in-time in in their production systems and so forth. They, They just, they're really, really good at it because it is ingrained in the culture. And in the United States, they largely tried to take that model and put it on top of a very old, established culture that didn't operate that way. And so it's been a long struggle, decades struggle, to be able to get there. So uh, I think it's been more difficult for the U.S. In Europe, they they do a really good job of managing everything. And some of that stems from the fact that they're dealing with s- smaller spaces. When they have their plants and their, you know, mm. the places where you can buy vehicles and so forth, when they, they they were kind of constrained space-wise. So they, from the get-go, started to manage it a little bit better, knowing that we we just can't store a lot of stuff. We can't do that. We don't have the space. And so uh, the United States has been playing catch up with that in a lot of their their um, manufacturing. Now, the, the foreign companies that have established assembly plants in the United States, they've tried to bring in that culture, but then they have to hire local labor. And then that can also cause some issues because of the local labor and how they operate is a little bit different. It's, it's a little bit tougher to try to take a model from another company and just cookie cutter, put it on your own. So um, I don't think that they've been having quite the same problems. Now they have other issues with their own parts and where they get their supplies from and things like that. But Hmm. but as far as the just in time and managing inventory, that's been a little bit easier for other types of other companies outside the U.S.
1: Okay, well, great. Thank you so much, Professor Susan Galisic. And thank you all for joining us for the session. Thank you.